Welcome to Feminist Question Time. Time is brought to you by Women's Human Rights Campaign. It's an international feminist organisation that promotes women's rights. It's got a main focus on defending women's sex-based rights against the threats posed by gender identity ideology. You can find more information on the website womensdeclaration.com where you'll find our declaration on women's sex-based rights. The declaration has been signed by 14,272 people from 126 countries and it's supported by 300 organisations. Can you please introduce yourself and give, give us some details of your involvement in advocating for women's sex-based rights? Well, uh, hello everybody. In, in your lovely summer weather, I'm so envious. Uh, you might be able to see just outside my window the twigs of the trees. We're in the middle of winter and it's very, very gloomy here. Um, Behind me, I've got my banners. One of them shows the cartoon you've just seen. And the other one is advertising my book that I published about um, a cartoon review of 2020. Um, well, I've come into this as a novice. Uh, what happened to me when I was cancelled um, is the first time anything like that had happened to me. I had been doing cartoons for the Morning Star for five years without any problems. Lots of the cartoons were very controversial. You know, they were having a go at the monarchy. They were having a go at uh, politicians. And uh, some of them were really, uh, you know, close to the edge. But no, no, no pushback at all from, from what we call, you know, laughingly call the left uh, until I did one cartoon on the trans rights issue. And the reason I did it was because it was in the news that week, because that's how you work as a political cartoonist. You, you do cartoons on whatever's in the news, you know. So this has become the defining issue of free speech in the Anglosphere, I would say, uh, because clearly there are countries in the world which, which couldn't care less about this. You know, this is, seems to be a mainly Anglosphere, middle-class, white phenomenon, and uh, to, to erase women's rights that women have fought for for over a hundred years. So um, I, I can't, I wouldn't say, that was the first time I found out about it, but that was certainly the first time it affected me personally. Um, and so since that time in the last year, I've got much more involved in, in rad feminist world. I've, I've been working with various um, organizations and websites that, that center women. And I'm trying to use my art to promote other women's work, other campaigners' work. I advocate for women's sex-based rights through the group International Women's Day Brisbane Mianjin. We have a Facebook page and we have a YouTube channel and you're welcome to look at both. So that work involves organising, as Anna has said, Australia's only capital city feminist IWD rally. Uh, it also involves hosting a monthly real-life women's discussion group that considers the different aspects of gender identities erosion of women's, lesbians and girls' rights and our safety and dignity. And it includes hosting an occasional series of feminist presentations that are, that are then posted to the IWD Brisbane Mianjin YouTube channel and you're welcome to have a look at those, those uh, presentations. We've had some fabulous speakers and we'll be having some more in March. I'm a clinical pharmacist and I work in a clinical setting. I've done some presentations in an effort to raise awareness of puberty blockers in particular. Um, and our national gender affirmation guideline uh, we are aware that Fully Informed is communicated to a lot of doctors and prescribers in New Zealand, particularly targeting um, those that are likely to be prescribing puberty blockers in sexual health clinics um, and to some GPs. And we've had a bit of feedback um, and that correspondence does seem to have ruffled a few feathers, which is good um, to have them really thinking about the um, the long-term consequences of for these children and um, especially in light of the Kira Bell case and the judicial ruling in the UK. Uh, I also support a women's group called Speak Up for Women in New Zealand which is which was organised in response to 
the attempted introduction of gender self-ID here, um, which would mean that any man could change his birth certificate to female by filling in an online form. And this was a stealthy attempt to get this legislation passed without any public consultation, um, as is, has happened elsewhere, such as Ireland. Um, but this but um, this group of women leafleted and surveyed and worked very hard. And fortunately, this resulted in um, the shelving of these plans for now. But we're a bit concerned that because Labour has won a landslide in the election and has such a strong mandate that they might just go ahead and pass it. Um, so that's something we've got an eye on and we need to inform the public about because I don't think there's actually a lot of public support to go ahead and do that. Um, but we need to make sure that the public know. So we're looking at ways of, um, of informing the public um, and despite our, our media being so um, showing such a one-sided view of gender ideology. Hi everyone, um, yeah I'm Jenny from New Zealand, I'm 57, I've lived here my whole life, uh, I was brought up by school teachers and who were trade unionists and taught me you know that I should stand up for what's right and to stand up against the abuse of power and authority. Um, I've had a pretty varied career, I was saying to Anna before I'm a bit of a nobody really, I've just been uh, worked as a labourer, I was a postie for a while, um, been a fishery observer, was a conservation analyst, so a conservation ranger. So I know what sex is because you can't save endangered species without it. <laughs> um, I've also worked as a policy analyst, I've been a statistician, and most recently I was a research librarian. Uh, I'm currently an unemployed nobody due to being put out of work as a result of my activism around sex self-ID. Um, I came out as lesbian in my teens, which was a long time ago. And I was lucky uh, because I did that at a time when second wave feminism and the gay rights movement were really at their height in New Zealand. And so I took my sex-based rights uh, for granted, really. You know, I got to play in lesbian sports teams. There was affirmative action for women in the trades. And I just really didn't put much effort into feminist politics. I thought we'd kind of won. And I just lived my life, actually. And I was, you know, I left it up to everyone else to, to deal with. Um, but like many people, I heard about sex self-ID uh, via social media. I had some mutual friends with Renee Gerlich, who uh, definitely doesn't get enough credit for her work on this, um, quite possibly self-ID would be law by now if it wasn't for Renee's work on it. So she copped a lot of shit for that and she's a brave woman. Um, I followed her on Twitter and came across people like Kathleen Stock, Jane Claire Jones, Holly Lawford-Smith, and actually through them developed an interest in studying philosophy. So thanks Anna for um, hosting the event and Janet if you're watching, thanks for giving me the opportunity to talk about this tonight. Um, what made you first realise transgenderism is a threat to women's rights or what was your peak trans moment? Um, right okay um, I need to say a little bit about my earlier life uh, because I'm a classic case of gender dysphoria as a child. I was almost literally raised as a boy by my parents uh, obviously up until the age of puberty when you suddenly find it was all a lie <laughs> and then you go into a state of shock and then you start getting all the sexual bullying at school and all that you know so I've been a non-conforming woman all my life um, like the lady just now I, I was in um, construction industry for 20 years so I worked in a, a male dominated world and was quite comfortable there you know um, found it difficult to make women friends really you know um, so all my life I've had to earn a living. So when I became a political cartoonist in 2015, uh, which was because of the left in Britain, we suddenly had a chance to get a Labour government, which didn't actually happen. But um, that's when I started uh, contributing to the Morning Star. So I suppose my peak moment was the, the threat to the 
the threat to women's rights over the Gender Recognition Act 2004. And this was in the news a lot. You know, women were campaigning on this. Uh, there was big meetings. And of course, there was all this uh, hatred and abuse from trans activists. You couldn't not notice it. You know, it was in the news on the TV, on, on the media, on internet and social media. So yeah, I suppose that is a, literally a year ago was my peak trans moment. And I had to make a choice when I was cancelled. Did I just crawl under a stone and lie down for this? Or did I become a campaigner like I used to be in my youth, you know, when I campaigned for gay rights and, and went on women's marches, you know, before I had to work full time. When I was in my early 20s, I was a campaigner. And I thought, well, should I go back to being a campaigner or should I just crawl under a stone and die? And I decided, <laughs> no, I'm going to make contacts in the feminist world and I'm going to be a campaigner again in my old age. To be honest, I never really had a peak trans moment. I never had a period of time when I thought it was okay for trans identified men to be seen as women. I was just really unaware of the whole issue until 2015. And when I was a young person, the transsexuals who I knew didn't ever claim to be women. They were accepted by most people for who they were. But then in 2015, a much younger feminist woman, uh, more than 30 years younger than me, explained to me that the current cohort of transsexuals um, calling themselves transgender, or perhaps a small number of them with very big financial backers, and I've since researched that, um, were now claiming that to be a trans-identified woman was to be a woman. So it was very apparent to me very quickly that the safety and dignity and fairness and justice issues um, were huge. As they are to everyone, I think those issues are actually uh, very obvious to everyone. But everyone also internalises misogyny, lesbophobia and homophobia. And genderism has been able to to tap into that, to build mob backing. And then I hadn't actually been to IWD in Brisbane for years, um, but I had always been involved in the abortion rights campaign since I was a young woman. And in 2017, the IWD people, who were not feminists, it was um, a group called Socialist Alternative who organised it, they asked me to speak because I was an abortion rights activist, and so I did. And the speaker who followed me was a man, a trans-identified man, who said three things that had me raising my eyebrows. So he said um, that he was really a woman because of some drugs that his mother had taken when he was in utero. Then he said, no, the first thing he said was he was pretty ambivalent about abortion rights. And I thought, well, of course you are. You will never have an unwanted pregnancy because you're a bloke. And then he said the best thing about being a woman was to have doors open for you. And so after that, I contacted a number of other feminist women and said, IWD used to be feminist when I was a young woman. Let's take it back. And so we did. We have from 2018. So this year will be the fourth, the fourth time. Unfortunately, in, in 2018, we, um, we did have a lot of trans activists attend IWD, and it was quite scary. Um, we had pre-warned the police that there would be trouble and there were a lot of police there. And if it hadn't, I mean, I'm from the 70s, so I've got a history of hating the police, but now they're my new best friends because if it hadn't been for the police at IWD 2018, we would have been pummeled. As it was, I did lose control of the speaking equipment and we completely lost control of the march. So that was 2018. 
but it made me more determined to hold a feminist IWD for the next year and the next. And fortuitously, the trans uh, decided that they'd hold their own IWD. So for a fairly small city like Brisbane, we have not just one, but two IWDs. So my peak trans moment was actually hearing a spokeswoman for Speak Up for Women on Radio New Zealand. Um, and she was speaking, so that must have been about 18 months ago, she was speaking about the International Olympic Committee uh, regulations that required a man to merely uh, suppress his testosterone for a year. Um, and I know the drugs that are used and I thought, I can't, could not believe my ears. I thought there's no way that that could undo the advantages of a male physique. Um, and um, yeah, to be eligible for the female category for any sport. It's, um, and, but I was actually more shocked um, when I was listening to that at the Radio New Zealand journalists and the way the spokeswoman was treated. And um, they said to her, well, well, why have you got a problem with this? <laughs> and I thought, blimey, I mean, any fair-minded, reasonable person should have a problem with this. This is grossly unfair. Um, so that, that piqued me right there and then. And then I ended up... Um, I couldn't remember what organisation she was representing. So um, I looked online and ended up uh, following Standing for Women and Posey Parker at the time. And she's considered quite radical because she doesn't believe that anyone can change sex and um, no matter what medical procedure they undertake. And I, I'm inclined to agree, actually. Well, I sort of, it sort of sneaked up on me because I, you know, I, I was on Twitter, you know, actually, um, we were encouraged to use Twitter at the, um, at NZDI, you know, and we'd be tweeting madly at um, the Minister of Education and various people with, you know, terrible ideas about education. So I was on Twitter a lot, including during work time. Um, and so obviously the people that I followed, I started seeing some pretty crazy stuff and started retweeting. You know, I was already skeptical. I, ha I have a very good friend who um, really, she, you know, she's like a family member to me. My parents died when I was in my early twenties and my brother and sister um, went to live in Australia, unfathomably. And um, so I was left here in New Zealand and, and this woman was, you know, I put her down as my next of kin, et cetera. Anyway, we had this conversation and she, she said to me, I don't want to hear your terrible views. And then she said, you know, that trans women were, were women. They were a kind of woman. And I, I really had never heard anyone say that before. I, I've been around trans people a lot. And I just assumed we were all being polite, <laughs> I guess, or kind or just ignoring it or whatever. Um, but she sounded as if she really was at least doing a very good job of pretending to believe that. And I was pretty shocked. I, I really thought, wow, is this where we're at? We're actually having to pretend this. I couldn't get my head around it. So I think that was really the moment where I I just thought this is nuts. So I've been friends with her since I was 18 and I haven't heard from her since then. That was two years ago. She's unfriended me and blocked me on social media and said lots of mean things about me on Twitter <laughs> with trans activists. And um, it's pretty heartbreaking, really. In a kind of a way, on another level, I kind of just think she's dumb. So, yeah. So, yeah, that was really my peak trans experience. Is there an area of activity, Stella, in which you focus your efforts to resist gender identity ideology and where has that taken you? Well, it's definitely taken me to support free freedom of speech and freedom of expression. Uh, we're, I think we're quite uh, stronger on that in the UK than in some other countries at the moment. Um, I did this myself by publishing a book in the real world um, in November. You can see this book and hopefully we'll put the link up where people can buy it afterwards. But it's available through all the online booksellers um, from Amazon and in, in Australia, probably Barnes and Noble might be your best one if you're avoiding Amazon. Uh, so people like in, in, in the UK, it's Waterstones, Blackwells, um, you know, so there are there are alternatives to Amazon, but it's on all the big booksellers online. You just have to search for the title. 2020, the year we were all cancelled. 
and it will come up. Oh, somebody's put up. Somebody's put up. Um, oh, you've put up my link. That's very nice. Thank you. Thank you, Anna. <laughs> yeah. So obviously, uh, I've never published a book before in my whole life. So that was another big thing that happened to me in the course of my cancellation year. Uh, I've I also um, had support from the Free Speech Union in, in the UK, which is quite new. That's only a couple of years old. And that has supported several women who've been cancelled and no platformed. And they supported me as well. So through that, I've, um, I've been involved in free speech campaigning. And I made a submission to the Parliamentary Committee on Freedom of Expression, uh, which has just published uh, the uh, submissions. So, you know, I, I intend to go this way throughout 2021. Uh, I'm, I'm going to go to as many, obviously, women's events as I can when the restrictions lift, because we're on national lockdown here. Uh, so we, we're, not, we're not sure when it's going to finish. But obviously, I, I've been to Standing for Women. I, I've met Posey. I've, I've been making contacts with women in, in, the, in the Radfern world. And I want to carry on doing that. Uh, you know, but freedom of speech and expression is my, my main focus as a cartoonist. Because in my book, I, I, I stand up for cartoonists in other countries who terrible things have happened to. I mean, they've even been murdered, you know. I really don't focus on a particular subject area and I don't have a specialised expertise in a particular subject area. Although when I chat with friends in real life who are largely unaware of what's happening, because, of course, we have a, a media um, ban on our side presenting our perspective, um, I realise that comparatively, I do have a wealth of knowledge. But what I really focus on is method of organising, political organising. Um, and that's upfront, public, at the meetings, in the streets. And if we look at the, the nine articles of the Declaration on Women's Sex-Based Rights, which is promoted by the Women's Human Rights Campaign, it would be Articles 4, and five that I focus on. So Article 4 um, is freedom of opinion and expression. And Article 5 is peaceful assembly and association. And based on the claim that we do have a right to assemble, we do have a right to organise as women. And lesbians have a right to assemble and organise based on sexual orientation. And when we gather, when we organise publicly, uh, we shouldn't have to allow men into our spaces. I mean, uh, you know, like other some of the other speakers, um, I'm a second waiver. So I was involved in the 70s and there was never any question that we would include men in our spaces. So also from the 70s, I mean, we, at one stage in Queensland, we had a, a ban on political marches. And the way we challenged that was not only by arguing for the ban to be removed, but by doing it, by actually doing it. And I think my way of arguing for the right of women to assemble publicly and to express our opinions is by doing it. And so, you know, because I am from the 70s, I like, I like activism. I like street activism. I'm familiar with it. But also, I think we do have a bit of a gap. I mean, and partly that's because of COVID, but I'm on so many feminist pages where so many women mount fabulous arguments but very often it's the same few hundred who follow those pages. And so to me, there's, there is a bit of a gap in terms of getting out onto the street. So, so that's what I do. They're, they're my areas, Articles 4 and 5. So mine's particularly, well, as I said before in my presentations, I've been drawing attention to the Gender Affirmation Guideline um, the medicalization of children and particularly uh, puberty blockers because they, they started so young um, and 
it all started when someone very close to me um, who was around the age of 13 uh, was prescribed or was recommended a puberty blocker and it wasn't for gender dysphoria this was for another indication but she was completely healthy um, and it was unlicensed an unlicensed use with very little evidence and I was quite horrified and started looking into it you know because I it made me realize how normalized this had become um so that sort of prompted me to to look into it closer and also I'd heard um so I'd heard about the Tavistock clinic and um been following some of the scandal that seemed to be unfolding there um and local teachers had told me um, I've got friends who are local teachers and they'd started seeing children being transitioned and they were concerned and they were saying to me things like um you know these these um girls actually were being um taken out of school one said to me you know it can't be good for them to be taken out of school and it's as if they're getting a cult is getting hold of them and they come back and they're and they don't seem to be, they often um, look worse and seem unhappy. Um, <clears throat> so I knew that it was, this wasn't just an overseas issue. This is going on um, locally at, on our doorstep. And also I could see the rainbow flags flying over our schools. We lived near a girls' high school and there would be the rainbow flag flying and we know that's now all about the tea. Um, and so I'd find that quite chilling, especially um, on polling day. I remember walking out after voting and looking at the, and it was held at a local primary school. I looked up and there was a rainbow flag flying over a primary school on on polling day and I thought well that's really how is that appropriate especially you know it's such a political statement um and our ministry of health states on its website that puberty blockers can be used to pause puberty and they are safe and fully reversible now um we that's not what the NHS says anymore um especially now that after the judicial ruling. Um, and I know that we have sent numerous um, official Information Act requests asking for where is there evidence to categorically say that these drugs are safe when there's actually evidence to say that they're not. Um, and there are question marks over the development of children. You know, you're, you're taking... Um, as the Carabao case has shown that virtually 100% of these children on puberty blockers will go on to cross sex hormones. Uh, that will mean they completely bypass a natural puberty and all the complexity of that process. Um, and the, you know, the brain development can be affected, bone development. Um, there's evidence to suggest that these children will not achieve optimal um, bone or brain or IQ. Um, and that's something that's not on the consent forms, any mention of, of the effects of IQ on IQ um, or potential effects on IQ. And we're effectively creating a chronic health condition in these children. It just defies any common sense. Um, and, you know, we're, it is likely to do them harm. These are children with, that are perfectly physically healthy and we're treating them with, with powerful agents um, for effectively a, a, a mental health condition that um, <clears throat> is being ignored. So... Also, our gender affirmation guideline says that doing, says, you know, the advice to GPs, for example, is doing not, nothing, i.e. not intervening, is not a neutral option. So there's pressure for them to go along with this guideline, and that's what doctors tend to do. They tend to defer to the guidelines um, because they're supposed to have the best evidence. But we know that these aren't high-quality evidence-based guidelines and that 
these treatments are quite um, experimental. And there will be even more pressure uh, if Labour goes ahead with its, um, you know, that they're saying in their rainbow policy that they released before the election that they will burn, um, ban conversion therapy. And which will, that, that would mean significant penalties for health professionals um, to suggest that any other option but go along with the medicalisation process. Um, yeah, so anyway, that's, so that's the area I'm focusing on. What I focused on um, the last two years since I got involved in this is um, mainly the sex self-ID legislation because I think everything else in New Zealand kind of stems from that, that once that's passed, you know, uh, women's rights are, unless they ensure that, you know, when they pass it, that they put some sort of measure in there to, you know, to maintain sex-based rights, then then we're, it's done, it's over, you know, men or women, and that's that. So, yep, as Louise mentioned, we're in danger of that happening. Um, the Labour Party votes as a unit, you're not allowed to dissent, and they've got a massive majority in Parliament. So we've got a very uh, smart and sensible Minister of Women and Minister in charge of that bill now. So there's a possibility she might be able to be talked into at least a consultation, but we'll see. So, yeah, um, my reasoning really is just that laws should be based on fact, you know. I mean, if it was a fact that men could change sex and become women, then I'd be down with it, you know, if we were like, I don't know, fish, the good old clownfish, then um, I wouldn't be able to argue against it. You know, I've got a science degree, so I've got a degree in zoology, and I know that mammals don't change sex, which is one of the things I said on Twitter that really upset my employers. <laughs> anyway, um, so I was the campaign manager for uh, that campaign that you mentioned, Louise, um, back in the summer of 2019, and along with people like Janet, our, our country contact here, um, we we did a lot of stuff. We had actually it was a really enjoyable campaign. I made lots of great friends. Um, we got lots of media coverage, and what we did was um, ensure that every MP in the house got at least two emails. And what they did was, as soon as they got them, they sent them to the minister in charge of the uh, the bill. So she apparently got over five hundred emails from people, and I know that. MPs start getting nervous when they get over 10 uh, <laughs> emails on the subject. So it was pretty good. But also, um, the minister in charge of that bill is a sensible woman, and she's just um, resigned from the political party that she uh, was in because they're sexist, the two women from that party. So that is just full of men now. Um, yeah, so she was really brave doing that, and she <clears throat> got a lot of flack for it. So the other thing I did with Speak Up for Women was um, organize an event called Feminism 2020 and we got the fabulous Megan Murphy to New Zealand after much trouble with the airlines, uh, Holly Lawford-Smith, Melissa Derby and Annie O'Brien who's uh, the spokeswoman for Speak Up for Women all uh, joined the symposium. It was meant to be held at Massey University where I am studying my philosophy degree but uh, they cancelled our booking without any notice and uh, we'd paid for Megan's tickets and Holly's tickets and everything. So um, luckily, Annie is a, a, an extremely good political operator and was able to arrange that we held the event in the New Zealand Parliament, which was way better than some shitty lecture theatre at Massey University. So that was really great. Um, but, you know, another example of cancellation by a university, of all things, horrifying. Yeah, um, another focus for me is lesbian rights. So uh, about a year, coming up for two years ago now, I joined the collective of the lesbian library in Wellington called Lilac, which is one of only two lesbian libraries, I think, in the world. Um, it's currently got at least one member who is a man that calls himself a lesbian. And, and yet, you know, bisexual women who are in relationships with men can't join, but men who say they're a woman can join. So it doesn't make sense to me. So my a big part of my purpose of joining is to get that returned back to a woman-only space. And it's not going to be easy <laughs> because there's a few trans activists in there. But 
yeah, that's that's my aim, and I'm pretty open about it. They don't like it, but who cares? Um, another thing that I've been involved in, in 2020, I was really fortunate to meet Ali Marie Diamond, and with her and a few other women um, from Speak Up for Women, we set up a group called Wahini Tora Rising, which is um, a survivor-led abolitionist group that's... Um, you know, promotes the Nordic model and exit services for women in prostitution. Um, and actually, we've been pretty successful, given we haven't been up and running for a year. Um, Ellie is a pretty tireless networker, and she's managed to organize for Wahini Tora Rising to become a member of this uh, international umbrella group called Coalition for the Abolition of Prostitution. So um, we'll be able to get some resources and hopefully some wages <laughs> so that uh, people won't be slaving away for nothing. Um, it'd be good to see Ali be able to do that as her full-time occupation. She's pretty effective. Um, so I've stepped away from that for now because I'm just exhausted. But yeah, at the end of last year, we um, did a campaign with Katwa um, during the 16 days against um, violence towards women. And we made a resource with them called Busting 16 Myths About the Sex Trade and, and kind of produced one a day and put them up on social media and that's you know we sent it to members of parliament and at least a couple of them got back to us and thanked us for sending it so that was nice yeah so um that's pretty much my involvement can you tell us a bit about what opposition you have met and how this has personally impacted on you and what is your experience of being sacked censored or silenced okay well i won't, won't go over what happened to me again but um when it happened, I was at a very vulnerable time in my life. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a registered carer for my husband. Um, and when this all happened, I was a full-time civil servant. Uh, so I'd been trying to plan how to reduce my hours at work and go towards retirement age, which is still five years away. And then this happened. And that really forced me to reevaluate whether I should stay and work at all. Um, like we don't have loads of money, we don't own our house or anything like that. So it's like, how could we do this? And because I'd been planning to reduce my hours gradually, anyway, my husband and myself made a decision that we would draw some money off our pensions so that we could live, so that I could give up work and become his full-time carer, essentially, uh, which is what's happened. Um, so I'm, although I'm now not retirement age, I'm what we'd call semi-retired, it means I can now concentrate on my artwork, my cartooning. So that's been a, a good side to it, but it has had some very uh, big impacts. It, it, the, the hate, having your name trashed and your reputation trashed all over the world on social media with no way of coming back against it, obviously um, that's, that's, pretty, that's a big thing to happen, you know? And because I'm not on Twitter, they went after friends of mine in the real world who are on Twitter. So I have a, a friend who I've, um, a children's book author and her 17 year old daughter, were, were, they were victimized on Twitter purely because they are associated with me. And it upset them so much that they come off Twitter completely. And uh, you know, you can't blame them really, can you, you know? But that makes it difficult for her advertising her books, you see? So, so yeah, these have real, impacts in the real world. Um, the other thing that um, I'm just saying um, is that the cartoon itself was reported to the police as what is called here a non-crime hate incident. Now, the, I don't know if this, I think this is specific to the UK. Uh, the, the police literally are logging hundreds of thousands of these things against people and you, you don't get told it's on your file. Um, the police don't get in touch with you. Uh, when you try to ask about it, you can do a, a subject access request. I've done one of those. You still don't get any answers about it. The only way I even knew this was on my file, the police had this against me on file, was because the editor of the Morning Star basically told me all about it. And then a journalist for a major British newspaper asked the police and they told him, but they still haven't told me anything. Um, so you have this hanging over you. You don't know whether it's going to escalate and whether they're going to pursue you. Um, they won't give you an answer about it. And obviously at my age, I'm not in the job market anymore. So it doesn't matter quite so much. But to a younger person, that 
is something that can be found on, on the security search that employers do when they're employing people. So you might not even know you've got that on your record, but an a potential employer could find it. And uh, that might, you know, that might stop somebody getting a job. Um, so obviously I've been trying to campaign uh, against these things myself because of my own case. And uh, a, a barrister in, who is based in Bristol, actually, Sarah Finnamore, is um, pursuing a case against the College of Policing, which advises all our police forces on the, this issue of how to deal with non-crime hate incidents, which they should be abolished. The whole, the whole they shouldn't even exist, you know. <laughs> but bear in mind that that is for the cartoon that you have seen on the screen. <laughs> so in theory, every single one of you that shares that cartoon, if you were in the UK, you also, you know, could have a non-crime hate incident put on your file by the police. So um, you, want, you did ask about personal impacts, and those are the impacts I've had. So I'm still trying to um, get answers about that. And obviously, I would like it to be wiped off my file. Who wants something like that hanging over you? And the other, the other impact for me as an artist is I'm a book illustrator as well as a cartoonist. And when every time I meet a new person who's asking me for illustrations, I have to explain all this stuff to them about this scandal and, and you know the fact that they can Google my name and all this hate comes up. And I have to tell them that before they even make a decision um, to, to, to go ahead and use me as an illustrator. I'm hoping that the notoriety, if you like, will, will enable me to, to maybe have interviews more in the mainstream media in the coming year and that and so that I can get the message across in the real world and and yeah. you know that's that's what I hope but our previous speakers have just said that you know we need to get off the social media and, and into the real world activism and yeah. so I'm going to try and use the notoriety of what's happened to me uh, to, to get maybe to get interviews with more mainstream people who have hundreds of thousands of followers or maybe on their podcasts for example and try and get the message out like that. I have had significant opposition and it's um, been personally um, quite significant. In, I, I should explain my background is in the left, um, like many of us. And so until this struggle began, I was really active around trade union activism and um, international solidarity campaigns um, and other socialist um, campaigns. So in 2019, I was banned by the Electrical Trades Union in Queensland, the ETU, from using their meeting rooms that had previously been offered to me for women's campaigns that I've organised, for example, abortion rights campaigns and um, the campaign opposing the wicked camper van incitements to violence against women. So that they were very happy for me to use their premises for those campaigns. Um, but fighting for women's sex-based rights was a bridge too far and was regarded as transphobic. So I was banned by that union, um, but also by other unions who I've worked with very closely over the years and since 2018 in trying to develop their support for the International Women's Day rally. So many unions, in particular the Services Union, the Queens and Teachers Union, the Queensland Nurses Union and the Public Sector Union together withdrew support for that annual IWD rally because they decided and told me that women who organise around women's sex-based rights are transphobic bigots. Uh, that's had a big impact for me on my social life as well as political activity. In 2018, when I was uh, organising the um, street rallies for abortion rights, a spokesperson for the Queensland Nurses Union advised me that, or, that her union wouldn't speak at or support any abortion decriminalisation rally that I was involved in organising 
although they support abortion rights, because I advocate for women's sex-based rights and am therefore transphobic. Uh, Labour for Choice, which is an internal group within, or was an internal group within the Australian Labour Party in Queensland, which campaigned for abortion decriminalisation, advised me at a meeting in 2018 that they would no longer support or attend the abortion decriminalisation street rallies that I organised every fortnight for two years uh, because I'm transphobic. The same advice was given to me by the abortion counselling agency Children by Choice. That advice came in an email. Numbers of progressive community women's and international solidarity groups have advised me and IWD Brisbane Mianjin that they won't even sit down with us to discuss our different political positions regarding women's, lesbians and girls' rights because we're transphobic. That's what we've usually been told. More recently, we've been told that it isn't the right time to support women's rights, which is quite staggering. Presumably the, the only right time to support women's rights is when we're winning them, not when we're having them taken from us. So in terms of uh, personal impacts, like all public feminists today, I've lost friends. One was a very dear friend who I went to university with more than 40 years ago and a bunch of less significant friends. Ex-friends have told me that radical feminists are toxic because we don't accept as women the men who demand to be called women. I've been told that feminists, gender critical feminists, should not be critical of the left. So it's okay to criticize the rights treatment of women. And of course we do that too, but the left has to be protected. So I can no longer attend a whole stack of social and political events on the left that I used to attend because of the hostility. The hostility is palpable. Do I miss it? Not really, although I did initially. Initially, when this first started happening, it was devastating. Um, but in fact, it's been more than balanced by the connections that I've been able to form with a whole stack of courageous women around the country, women like Anna Kerr, who's chairing this meeting, and other women who I invite up for the weekend of International Women's Day. We actually have not just the rally and march, we also have presentations. And this year we're having an activist meeting as well. So a bunch of, of uh, gender critical feminists and radical feminists from New South Wales and Melbourne, um, one from WA are coming. So, you know, meeting those women has more than balanced out the loss of political and social connections that I used to have. Well, I too have lost friends, unfortunately. Some of my friendships are a bit strained and I've been told not to talk about this. Um, and I've been surprised and so disappointed. Um, you know, we've, I've got friends that are lawyers and journalists and I'd, I can't believe they don't or they just don't want to know. They may agree with me, but they certainly don't want to say so. Um, and one said to me, you know, Louise, I just want to be kind. And I, but I think, well, kind to who? You know, is that kind to young girls in changing rooms? Is it kind to the Samoan woman who lost her medal to Laurel Hubbard, I mean, the son of a millionaire? She was a, an indig a young Indigenous woman. I mean, that's, yeah, I see it as so unkind what's going on to women. Um, so the misogyny has been a bit of an eye opener. Our New Zealand media comes as a cross for public relations, a public relations instrument for our government. Um, you know, they, they'll interview people like Judith Butler, but not any gender critical feminists. And I suspect it's because, well, the public would probably agree with, um, with gender fit critical feminists they heard 
if they if they understood the issues. Um, however, the good news is that I think um, common sense in New Zealand seems to be prevailing. Um, so there was a recent poll um, that's shown that opposition to gender ideology has um, grown significantly from a similar poll. And so in 2019, 54% of people thought children should be taught that they can choose their own gender and that it can be changed through medicalization. Um, but a recent poll showed that that had dropped to 16%. And that is despite the efforts of our media to only portray gender ideology as, as a wonderful, you know, liberal, um, progressive thing. So that's been heartening. So when I first heard about all of this carry on, I was working as a research librarian at the New Zealand Educational Institute, uh, which is our primary teachers union. And um, I worked there for six years. Uh, the union movement in New Zealand is riddled to the core with careerist, bourgeois, trans activists. It really is. And those people are in the sort of um, the staff positions. It's not generally members, although in the teachers union, there's probably a lot of members who would support the stuff. Most unions in New Zealand are run by tired old men who um, are really just interested in keeping their cushy jobs, I think, a lot of them. There's some good guys in there, but certainly the National Secretary of the NZDI is a coward and um, just mouths the words that he's been told to say by these trans activist people because nobody dares to speak up against them ridiculous anyway um i decided that i would be open about my role with speak up for women so i put it in my twitter bio that i was the campaign manager and i told the campaign director who uh her name is stephanie mills i like naming these people um she's a big wig in greenpeace new zealand and um has a very well-paid job at nzdi sucking up money that she gets from teacher aides and ECE teachers who are paid very poorly. Anyway, um, when I first told her, she didn't really bat an eyelid, but as soon as it became publicly known that I was part of Speak Up For Women, um, I became a target of trans activists. And um, I think the first issue was that I was tagged in a post and my employer's official Facebook group was tagged as well. And they claimed that I supported pedophilia because Speak Up For Women posted a quote from Germaine Greer on our Facebook page, um, which apparently makes you a pedophile. So um, that wasn't particularly nice. Um, I was pretty much overnight, I was ostracized by a significant number of my colleagues. There were about 20, 20 people on our floor and I'd say about half of them just kind of stopped talking to me basically. They just kind of looked through me in the lift and they wouldn't respond to questions. They wouldn't answer emails. Um, they'd go out for drinks and where I would have previously been invited to join them for drinks, they wouldn't invite me and I'd just sit there at my desk. <laughs> it was kind of rough, actually. It wasn't really that nice. Um, a bunch of people made anonymous complaints about me, so they wouldn't make a formal complaint because they would have had to put their names to it. They just um, screenshotted my Twitter feed which, you know, I mean, I am I call it as I see it, but I don't think I ever said anything illegal. <laughs> Maybe not polite always, but um, not, not uh, derogatory particularly, I don't think. Um, yeah, so the National Secretary launched this investigation into my social media use, and I had to have a big meeting and got told that my job was on the line and that I had stopped doing all this tweeting. I had to unfollow everyone from work. I had about 30 odd friends on Facebook who were my colleagues and I had to unfriend all of them. I had to lock my Twitter account. Otherwise, you know, I'd get the sack basically is how they threatened me. And they wrote me a final written warning saying that I didn't uphold the values yeah. of the Institute, which interestingly, 
are not anywhere. <laughs> you can't read them anywhere because there aren't any official values of the Institute. They just made them up. So, um, yeah, uh, I, I kind of thought about it and I thought, well, look, I can use my social media in my own time to say anything I like. So I unlocked my Twitter account and uh, within days more um, screenshots and things had been anonymously sent to uh, Paul Golter, his name is. Paul Golter is the National Secretary and Coward of the NZDI. Um, so there was another investigation and I again got a second final written warning. Um, but their lawyer clearly understood that I hadn't done anything illegal. I hadn't done anything that they could fire me for um, and that they would be acting illegally if they did. So they just had to give me another warning. But within weeks of that happening, um, Stephanie, the campaign's director, uh, decided to have a review of the team that I was in. So it was a team with 10 people in it. Um, the review was transparently bullshit and was designed to get rid of me and my 82-year-old colleague who was an old-school trade unionist and a, a battle axe who stood up um, against the shitty, you know, politics of the union and she was thought that the members should you know, have primacy. So she wasn't very popular either. And we both got the heave ho. Um, yeah, this was a, uh, within six weeks of being given this final warning. So it was pretty clear that they were just getting rid of me. Um, they did disestablish part of my role, but more than 75% of my job ex remained in existence and it was just redistributed to other staff. So they were just getting rid of me um, in a trouble-free manner. So... The good thing about it is um, I got a payout, I got a redundancy settlement, and I wasn't gagged. I can say what I like about it, and that's why I always make sure to mention names when I do. <laughs> so that's my, my sad story. So I'm currently unemployed. Um, to be honest, there are worse things <laughs> at the moment. I was lucky, you know, to get that payout, and um, yeah, I've just been spending the last year recovering, to be honest, from... An incredibly horrible couple of years, <laughs> difficult years. Yeah, no regrets though. What are the next steps, or what do you um, suggest for WHRC attendees? So just well, obviously I've published a book, so I'm promoting my book. So if you guys want to support me, just go online and look it up just by the title. Um, I'm working. I'm planning to work a lot more with. Um, women's campaigning organizations. The most recent one is Keep Prison Single Sex. Um, she's actually producing a, a website page for Australia, I believe. Um, this is her spinster account and those are my designs and they're on t-shirts and mugs. And so you can buy that merchandise to support that very, very well worthy organization um, run by this one woman on a, on a shoestring. So yeah, please do support that organization. Um, you can regularly see my cartoons at the following websites, uncancelled.co.uk, Uncommon Ground Media, and uh, Women Are Human. So those three websites are all regularly featuring my, my cartoons, my illustrations. Uh, so you can you can see them there. And also on Spinster, I'm, I'm quite active on Spinster. Oh, that's my latest cartoon about <laughs> yeah, Biden painting, uh, painting America pink and blue. <laughs> Hope you like that cartoon. Uh, yeah, so what advice would I give attendees? I would, I would say, obviously, keep on um, supporting all the women's campaigns. Um, only yesterday, an amazing film called Dysphoria came out on YouTube, four-part film by Vesnavi Sundar. She's been making that film for over a year. That's a wonderful film to watch on YouTube, Dysphoria, um, to watch that. And the, the only other thing I would like to say is, don't be afraid to reach across the aisle to women from conservative backgrounds. You know, they are not the evil empire. They are women the same as us. They, they suffer the same as us. Their children are suffering the same as, you know, any other women. And we are, we are in a kind of limbo, you know. The left, has, the left has left us. The left has abandoned us. Now, it doesn't mean we can't still... I still call myself a communist, you know. <laughs> doesn't mean we can't still call ourselves of the left but the left as an entity has abandoned us and uh, I'm quite happy to work with women who have 
different views on things like gun control or the environment. That doesn't bother me at all, as long as they're on page with protecting women's rights and women's space, safe spaces and uh, fighting against this madness, this trans ideology, which is, I mean, you know, it is just nonsense and madness. I will continue to build real life activism through public meetings, um, raising money to bring different speakers to Brisbane and rallies. I will also encourage and support young women to become more involved in activism and to run skills-based workshops uh, that will assist women to become in politically involved who haven't been previously. I'd like to further the work that we've begun <coughs> in Australia in collaborating across the states where you know we have regular contact between a number of women in different states. And that's been inspirational, it's been heartening and it reduces the sense of political isolation. So I really want that to continue. And finally, I want to work with women and men I know in the Labour Party and the Greens who do not go along with genderism. They'll say it to you privately, but they won't do it publicly and they won't yet organise within their parties to have, you know, a feminist caucus. I know a lot of these women and men and they've said lots of stuff to me but they still are not prepared to raise it publicly within their parties, especially the Labour Party. It's important to get those people to speak up and to organise within their party. They're the things that I'll do. I think, well, I'll continue to speak to people and make presentations and, um, and push back against the use of puberty blockers in children particularly. Um, and actually, I was speaking to a specialist at, at work who's involved in all this, and he actually does, you know, does the prescribing. And but he said to me, "Look, um, Louise, it's good that you are pushing back because he said all the pushing I see, all, all the pushing that seems to be coming from the other side. So um, I seem to be the first one that had really confronted him over it. Um, so." And I think just more people just need to be braver. We all need to be speaking out. And the people that do, like any journalist that does um, write about this, if they can get get this in, into the mainstream press, we really need to um, support support them and make sure they're recognised. Um, you know, we're, they're recognised for their courage. Um, yeah, because it takes courage and moral fibre to stuff it, stuff against, stand up against this. Um, and I think it, it's going to turn around. The results of that survey was very heartening. Um, denial of reality will only last so long. Um, I hope we really learn from this as a society how this can happen and you know it's not it's not healthy um for things to be out of bounds and to not talk about you know, serious issues that affect this particularly when the health of our children are being is being affected um yeah so keep talking just keep yeah. talking i think the important thing if you're in new zealand is to email the minister of internal affairs Jan Taniti, she's a former member of the National Executive at NZDI. She's a school principal. She's a really smart person, and she's probably our best hope for getting a consultation, at least, on the birth, deaths, marriages, and relationships registration bill that contains the sex self-ID provisions. Um, and at the very least, maybe some kind of um, supplementary order paper to you know, put something in that says none of this will derogate from, you know, women's rights as per the Human Rights Act, something like that. So um, the bill's up for its second reading in February and we've just got to fight like hell until then. But I would uh, just echo what other people have said, be brave, you know. I mean, it's not that much fun getting ostracised. It's not that much fun having to stand up to bullies like 
Paul Golter of NZDI. <laughs> but um, on the other hand, you can kind of, you know, sleep at night. Well, I had to get some medication to do that in the end, but um, you can look at yourself in the mirror, you know, and you know that you're not one of these cowards putting pronouns in your bio and pretending that you actually believe men can become women. You know, I mean, it takes a bit of courage to do that and that's something you can feel good about. And there's a lot of, you know, a lot of us will support you. So join Speak Up for Women, join Women's Liberation, Aotearoa. Um, and, you know, hands across the aisle, as people say, you know, conservative women are women. They're not stupid. Um, a lot of them are really good feminists. And don't let anyone put you down for that because there's a lot of bullshit comes from men on the left about that. So, yeah, just um, stand up for ourselves. That's my advice.